I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Dr. Robert Ballard is among the most accomplished and well-known of the world's deep-sea explorers. Dr. Ballard is best known for his historic discoveries of the sunken Titanic, hydrothermal vents, the German battleship Bismarck, and numerous other contemporary and ancient shipwrecks around the world. During his long career, he has conducted more than 150 deep-sea expeditions using the latest in exploration technology. On this episode, Dr. Ballard discusses many of the incredible moments he's experienced on his journey. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, Other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Dr. Robert Ballard, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, It's a pleasure. Well, I'm getting ready to go to sea, so I'm really happy. I've been bottled up and my gills have been drying out. So I'm, I'm heading to see. Can't wait. Get into your happy place. I love it. I want to start this conversation with a line I came across uh, in, in your new book, Into the Deep. And I'm going to read it right now. So give me a second here. When you do something unpredictable, many people have a hard time processing how you pulled it off and why you were the one who did it what others couldn't. They never acknowledge the creative thinking, the willingness to push yourself to the point of exhaustion, and yes, the often desperate improvisation that went into it. When it came to finding the Titanic, all of these things came into play, including luck. I readily admit it. I absolutely love this. I feel like this is just a beautiful encapsulation of probably who you are. It it is, because uh, I didn't really know who I was until fairly late in life. I knew I was different. I knew I had challenges that were tough. I didn't like living in the box. I was an out-of-the-box person, but I didn't understand why I, I left the box. And it wasn't until my daughter was diagnosed with dyslexia, which is, you know, inherited. And I realized I was a smoking gun and I dealt deep into, I was 62 years old when I heard that uh, I, she was dyslexic. And, and then I discovered I was, and it was like reading that book, The Dyslexic Advantage, not Disadvantage. I cried. I felt uh, it was describing and explaining me to me for the first time in my life. It was quite that and writing this book and and doing the TV show that airs on June 14th that I realized I had a gift. I didn't think of it as a gift, but now I realize it is a gift and I'm celebrating it. And I want to encourage the 20% of our population that have this gift to use the gift in the right way. So, yeah, I'm very excited. 
why do you feel it, it took the, the full 62 years to, to really fully explore yourself and, and come to that realization? Well, you know, I struggled reading. And my parents said, well, when we moved from Kansas and to California, you missed phonics. And so I just accepted the fact that I was a slow reader. Like, well, you're a slow reader. Okay, so I read twice as long. So I just, you know, compensated by developing all sorts of coping mechanisms. But it wasn't until I realized why I was having trouble reading that my brain, dyslexic brains, are wired differently. End of story. If you can't rewire them, they're wired differently. Our neurons are based wider apart, which gives us certain capabilities, but it also makes encoding and decoding more difficult for us. So I just turned out accidentally to go down a road perfect for dyslexia. And that is I go into a world that's pitch black, and I get sensor information from my instruments, and I form an image in my mind. I thought everyone could do that. So I just said, well, you but I remember most demonstrated to me when we found the Titanic with robots, but then we went back the next year with our submarine because we wanted to send a vehicle inside. The Navy wanted us to practice before we went into this classified nuclear submarine. And uh, as we went in the water, everything broke. Tracking broke. Everything started turning into a disastrous Titanic expedition road. And the pilot says, well, I don't know where I am. I don't know where we're going. The sonar is not working again. And I said, keep going, keep going. And finally, you know, two and a half hours get down. We land on mud, nothing, no signposts. And he said, well, smarty pants, we're the Titanic. And I went there. And it was. And I didn't know how I knew it was over there. But now I do. I When I sit in my command center, which I'm going to be in, you can come and join us, by the way, live, starting July 3rd. Go to nautiluslive.org, and you'll see me standing in our command center. It's got more sensors than you can imagine. It's like 12 747s, and all of this stuff is telling it. And I close my eyes, and I form an image, and it all makes sense to me. And I just wander around in the dark, and I'm not lost. There's a great saying, all who wander are not lost. Hmm. Not all who wander are lost, and that's me. I I wander, but I'm not lost. I know where I am. I love that. I think it's so helpful too for, for so many people who who might think they have a, a weakness, but there's actually this opposing strength encapsulated within inside that, yeah. and we can really tap into that. What, what? It, you need to go down the right road, and tragically, there's a high suicide rate amongst dyslexics, and the majority of people in our prisons are dyslexic. So don't go down that road. And unfortunately, I was a kid that got to go down the right road. And I want to reach out to the ones that don't have the opportunities I had to help them, to mentor them, to tell them, no, there are really good roads to go down. We now know at MIT, they call it dyslexia, the MIT disease because of all of the engineers. Engineers, this huge percentage of my engineers are dyslexic. Uh, in, in, in the media arts and arts, lots, in, but mostly entrepreneurs. Most of the self-made millionaires are dyslexics. I mean, you just run off the list. Richard Branson, Charles Schwab, Ted Turner, on Steven Spielberg, Whoopi Goldberg. There's a long, long list of successful dyslexics, but a much, much longer list of non-successful dyslexics. And those are the ones we want to reach. It's time for us to come out and for people to recognize us and stop bullying us in school and telling us we're stupid. 
and causing us to feel shame so that we won't even talk about it. So most dyslexics won't raise their hand. And I want them to all raise their hands and clap. One one of the things I'd, I'd love to unpack is your creative thinking process, specifically around the, the deep sea exploration. And I would love to know just, I mean, I, I have no experience in deep sea exploring. What is that creative thinking process like for you? It's fun. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, I I see things and I ask people, you see it and they say they, they don't see it. I dream up things that are, they say I'm crazy. For example, I, cre- I published a cartoon. <laughs> in the uh, National Geographic magazine, this December issue of a cartoon of the future of telepresence, that we're going to have out-of-body experiences. And they all thought, I made this cartoon. And you can read it in the December issue, 1981, National Geographic, and a bear on the cover. You always remember the visuals. Uh, and in that, I showed it to my engineer, and they said, you're nuts. And I went, what, what laws of physics did I violate? And they go, no. And they went through everything, fiber optics, microprocessing, satellite compression, all of that. And they went, well, actually, yeah, it's possible. I said, gotcha, gotcha, because I can dream up things that are real because I studied the laws of physics. Those are the rules of so the game. You study the laws of physics, which is easy for dyslexics. I, Albert Einstein, by the way, hello, dyslexic. Uh, you can dream with in, in scoped in reality. When I dream, it's believable, doable dreams. And that's because I put the laws of physics around me as my boundary conditions. And it's a lot of fun because I'm dreaming up things hourly, every hour. And then I know I need non-dyslexia. Take it into the weeds. I'm at 65,000. I need someone down there in the weeds. So I have great people in the weeds. So it's, it, it takes a village. What are you dreaming up right now that, that has you most excited that most people would probably think you're crazy for thinking about? Well, it's electronic travel. I mean, uh, you saw the movie Avatar, right? Yep. Remember Jake the War Veteran? Mm-hmm. Remember when they took him in the room and they laid him on a slab next to a Navi and they put him in a Navi? Mm-hmm. A Navi, as you know, is an eight-foot blue-green funny ears and a tail drag to plug into a dragon. And so there's Jake laying next to a Navi. And the Navi eyes open, and Jake's in the Navi. What did what did Jake do the minute he realized he was in the Navi? Remember what happened the moment he opened his eyes and realized he was not in his body? No, I don't remember that specific instance. And ran. He ran out of the operating room, and they thought he'd lost it. They freaked out, and they ran after him and said, "Jake, are you okay?" He said, "I'm fine." Why did you run? He said, "I wanted the wind in my face again." Why did he say that? Why did he say, I want the wind in my face again? Remember, he was paralyzed. He hadn't been able to run. And here's my point. He didn't care his legs were blue-green. He got up and ran. Humans, 95% of all human beings at this second are standing on less than 10% of the earth. Less than 10%. Because the other 90% is not friendly to us. But our spirit is indestructible. So I put down my Navi. It's called a remotely operated vehicle called Hercules. And it carries my spirit. And I beam down. And what, we're, what we are the tip of the spear of when everyone has the ability. I have amazing bandwidth into my, my home and amazing bandwidth into my 
command center. I have my own personal command center just a few minutes away, and I go in it, and I'm on the ship because I have 10 gigabits of bandwidth, and I can create a pseudo presence that fools me into thinking I'm somewhere else. When you're looking at, if you weren't looking through Zoom and just looking at, around, you don't see your body. In fact, your your brain moved your eliminated your nose. Did you know your brain absolutely removes your nose? You don't see it. Okay. And so you look out and you you just see the world. You you don't look to see if your 12 fingers or or your purple or green. You're going to be renting what we call in engineering end effectors. And end effectors are a robot you're going to rent. And if you saw that 60 minute show, they're running faster than we're running. They have a body like a human. And you're going to put yourself in that body and you're going to go run around in the Serengeti or something and get a phone bill. Okay. And you're not going to leave a carbon footprint. Electronic travel is going to, we've been doing it. It's called Zoom. Look what we're doing right now. The pandemic was a, a, a kindergarten class in moving your spirit around. You should move, graduate to our capability. In fact, when I designed this last one, and I showed it to my board, one of my board members, I, I said, it'll fool you into thinking you're there. And he said, well, what if a shark goes by? Is there a risk of a heart attack? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you better, he was a lawyer. He said, you better have people write disclaimers that if you kill them, scare them to death, you're not liable. Well, okay, I guess we got to cut across that bridge. But that's where we're headed. And just think of the drop of our carbon footprint. Look at what happened during the pandemic. We saw the sky all of a sudden. We are going to be able to go wherever we want at the speed of light and get a phone bill. That's remarkable. Yeah, this, it, it's so fun, the, the cutting edge technology and, and what we're tapping into right now. I love that. I would love to know, because part of this, right, like you can dream up all of these things, but you really need that capacity to push through that, that exhaustion point that you talked about. When did you first start discovering that within yourself, that you had that unique ability? Well, I have, I'm ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> and my daughter. So basically, what I had on the mirror uh, for Dougie, when he was growing up, he's now a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, my body is like a race car. And when I learn how to drive it, I'll win lots of races. So it's really how to handle energy. And I have got a pattern I've developed of, of burning energy in a constructive way, not a destructive way. So I, I love physical and mental work. And so I've crafted a life where I... I can, uh, if we weren't Zooming, I'd probably be doing something else while I'm talking to you. I'd be out in the garden. I'd be making, you know, I do, all, my wife loves it. I do all the dishes. I make. You know, I, do, I just have all this energy. And, uh, but I also have a way of, of relaxing. I have right over here, just put it away, a puzzle board. And it's a big puzzle board. And my wife gets me a thousand piece puzzles and she covers up what it is. So I have no idea what the puzzle is. And I dump out this thousand piece and I go and I work on it. So I move from that puzzle board back here, back there, because I get so excited about uh, what I want to do. My brain just goes overdrive and I go over and I relax and I do something really stupid, like putting pieces together in a puzzle and it calms me down. So I, I don't, I never used any kind of drugs whatsoever. I just, found ways of burning off energy. It's sort of like when you see it, the oil fields and it's burning off the excess. I had a way of burning off my energy and I still do it. And I have a really nice pattern. I just make sure I don't spend too much time with the puzzle board, 
but I and I don't do I don't talk to humans before noon. This this I had to come in early because I wake up and I'm I'm ready because I have my subconscious and my conscience. My subconscious is much smarter than my conscience, uh, and it doesn't sleep. When I was in dyslexia, what I would do is I would write up my notes and on a sheet of paper, and then I would I would as I was going to bed I would photograph them because dyslexics just take pictures, click click click, and then I sleep and my mind works on my notes, my subconscious while my conscious is sleeping. I wake up in the morning totally memorized. So then. I go in to take a test, and I always felt like it was cheating because I closed my eyes and I look at my notes, and I thought, "Is that cheating?" Because I can see my notes and I could read the answer, and then I got good grades. So it was a question of, "Got to play by their rules." Well, I'm going to play my way by your rules, and so I developed all of these mechanisms for uh, playing in a surviving education, basically surviving bad teachers. That's your challenge. And fortunately, I had, there were oases throughout my desert of education where I found a teacher that bent on my horse, could see something, and they sort of encouraged me to continue or I would have quit. But I was determined to be Captain Nemo, and I was told I had to have a PhD in oceanography. And I said, well, if that's what it takes, okay, here we go. I don't really think of myself as an academician, although I've lived in it all my life. I have many tenured uh, I reached full tenure at Woods Hole MIT, which is not an easy place to get tenure. I uh, I just endured all of that, and uh, it made me a better person. It made me a Swiss Army knife. As in the book, I talk about, you know, I went into the Army. I went into college athletics. I went into student government. I quadruple majored in math, physics, chemistry, and geology. Never made the dean's list, but I learned a lot. Uh, no, I just ate at the smorgasbord of life. And uh, I can play in pretty much any game. It, it reminds me of someone you actually mentioned, Albert Einstein. He, he would relax his mind playing his violin. It sounds like similar to you with, with the puzzle. But then my wife, here's my, this shows you how insidious my wife is. She got me a thousand piece puzzle and it had no borders. So there went all, they had all those, there was no borders. So it was just like an amoeba. One to know. Then it had holes in it you couldn't fill. They were unfillable holes in the puzzle. And it had extra pieces that were worthless and went nowhere. And the final coup de gras, every piece was the same shade of blue. It took me a little longer, but I did it. And so that's how I relax, puzzles. I, I love you tapping into your subconscious. I think it's one of those things too many people don't explore enough. Are there any other things that you do that have allowed you to really let that subconscious shine through? Well, the biggest problem is is – See, when you reach 79, you wake up, and that's the problem, okay, because you sleep in REM cycles. You sleep, and I certainly learned this in the Navy, uh, standing watches. You sleep in 90-minute cycles. They're called REM cycles. And then when you reach a 90-minute, you get close to near awake, and then you go back in. You go back in. Well, now when I get there, I wake up. Now I'm conscious. And my subconscious says, hey, while you were asleep on that last REM cycle, I have something I want to, and I go, go away, go away, go away. And then I try to get back into my next REM cycle. But commonly, I have to get up. And I say, all right, uh, what is it? And they say, well, I've been thinking about all this stuff. And I come to my office, and I work for an hour. And I say, will you leave me alone now so I can go back to sleep? And I go back. So it's, a man it's mastering my own time. 
you know, not offer, I, I hate alarm clocks. I hate alarm clocks. I want to wake up naturally. And those are those 90 minute cycles. So it's, it's an hour and a half, three hours, four and a half, six, seven and a half, or nine. And you just see sleep in REM cycles. So on our ship, it's four on eight off watches. So you got eight hours and you can get in, you can get in uh, six hours of reps and, and have other time. So, yeah, it's just understanding how your body works. And, you know, if, it, if, it, if you get a lemon, you make lemonade. I mean, you just make the most of it. And I have. And I'm very happy with it. I'm trying to calm down. I'm not terribly good at that right now. But I, I read the wrong definition of retiring. One in the dictionary, and it said, uh, there's another definition, and it said halfway through the Indianapolis 500, the driver goes into the pit and gets a new set of tires, and it's called retiring. So that's, <laughs> I've been putting on a new set of yeah. tires every 15 years. Not, not a bad way to go about things. Uh, no. I, you've got such an uh, interesting view on life and it's such an interesting working mind. I, I just have to know, like, what's obvious to you, just that's not obvious to everyone else? Well, what's scary, the good news or the bad news. I mean, I'm really worried about, I do, I'm not worried that uh, Earth will be here in a billion years. Not a problem. Still a teenager, got a long haul to go. I'm not worried about life. Being on Earth is so creative and adaptive, and we've had multiple near misses and extinctions, and we bounce back. I'm not confident the human race will survive the century. I'm really saddened because, see, I believe in a concept, and it was Lovelock, uh, who's a dyslexic, who proposed the concept of Gaia, G-A-I-A, and that is that Earth is a creature, and it's codependent upon life on Earth. So it's, it's a symbiotic relationship between the planet and life. And there's one species now that is throwing that balance uh, out of kilt, and it's us. And what's going to happen is they're going to declare war on us. And some people will say the pandemic was open warfare by Earth and life on Earth to get rid of us. We are being perceived as a threat, and we're going to lose. Unless we say, okay, sorry about that. Let's say, uh, can we cut a deal? Yeah, get back. I, I, I'm not supposed to recommend other people's books, but I'm going to recommend a book called The Nature of Nature by Enrique Sala. Oh, my goodness. I, he's a colleague, fellow explorer at large with National Geographic. His book lays it out beautifully. And you better listen because we're running out of time. By 2050, we will not... We will have exhausted the ability of the planet to feed the, our population because we will have consumed more and more farmland. We need to turn to the sea. But right now, we've destroyed all 90% of all the large creatures in the ocean. We, we've hunted them down and killed them. We're hunting the lions and tigers and bears. We need to move from a hunter-gatherer society in the ocean, which is devastating it, to where we were 2,000 years ago when we stopped being hunter-gatherers on land. We cultivate crops, we domesticated animals, and we do the same in the ocean. And it's doable. And there's a program called the Valella Project that shows you how we can feed the planet from the sea. And this is the whole new blue economy. And that's why we need to understand the ocean because we haven't explored it. Yeah, it's mostly unexplored. What was the name of that project you just mentioned? Valella Project, B E L L E L A. 
uh, Neil Sims, who he took a fish that you pay extremely a lot of money for called a yellowtail sushi. It's a predator. And he took this predator, which we pay $17.50 a pound wholesale. He took it off Hawaii in the middle of nowhere in a tropical water that has virtually no productivity. Because when water is hot, it boils off its nutrients. So he took it to a place where there isn't anything. He put it in cages. He submerged them so you wouldn't run over them. And he then had a conversation with the fish. He said, listen, I'm, here's the deal. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to flip you from a carnivore to a herbivore. And so we're not going to give you anything you can be a carnivore on. And we're going to give you, initially you did soybean. We're going to eat the soybean or die. Guess what the fish did? Well, I guess if you explain it that way. And he flipped. Now he's doing it with algae, sea-based plants. And he took a carnivore and flipped it to become a herbivore. And it's scalable to feed the world. And so there is a solution. So that's what we're up to. We're trying to figure out how to keep ourselves out of trouble because we seem to be going out of our way to get in it. No, that, that's certainly true. Uh, we'll certainly have that linked up in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Uh, I need to know for you, like, what's driving you right now? Clearly, you're just a voraciously curious person, but like, you're, you're tackling some big things. Well, I'm dreaming up all sorts of things. Some I can talk about and some I can't. And, uh, but I'm mentoring now. I'm, I'm replacing myself. Uh, I'm, I'm, I live I have five offices, five staffs, five different, you've read the book. I'm a Swiss army knife. I'm getting a person to run each blade and then getting to work together. So right now I'm, I'm systematically replacing myself. And, uh, I did it before when I was at Woods Hole and I told everyone I was going to leave two years before I left. And when I left, all that went out was the light in my office hmm. and, uh, I'm ready to do what MacArthur did when he spoke at the at West Point, old soldiers never die; they just fade away. So I'm, I'm working on the fading away phase. For you, what were the indicators that, that you knew it was time? I'm old. I'm 79. I feel like I'm talking to a 25 year old, though, Doctor Ballard. I mean, you know, like I've got this body. Okay, you know, uh, the spirit may be uh, ageless, but the body, gravity does catch up with you. No, I'm, I'm. I, I, I heard a lecture by an interesting person at, at Harvard, Arthur C. Clarke, who said, uh, when you hit my age, you need to do three things. And he talked about, he talked that we were in a redwood forest at the time, and it's in the book. And it talks about, he's standing up against a big redwood that's 300 feet tall. And he says, this redwood, been around for 2,000 years, and it's now 350 feet tall, but its roots only go down six feet. Why doesn't it blow over? No he says, because it sends its roots out to the side and grabs onto the other trees. That's lateral bonding. That's developing friendships, a lasting, non-professional human friendships. So I've been doing a lot more of that, a lot more fishing, a lot more being with people uh, that I didn't do before. The second thing he said is you need to mentor, and I'm full speed on that one. The third one, the final one, he said, and when that next big project comes along, say no. <laughs> that one I'm struggling with. But I can redefine what big is, and that means maybe it's just me. So when we were writing the book, working with Chris Drew, who's a great journalist from the New York Times and wrote Blind Man's Bluff, he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, when you, because you became Captain Nemo, I said, well, I'm going to become his father. And he said, well, I didn't know Captain Nemo had a father. I said, he did. Jules Verne. 
So I've gone back into fiction. I wrote a fictional novel a, year, a few years back called Bright Shark, but I'm working on one called The Island of Tranquility, which is a view of, I see the future. Dyslexics can see the future. And I'm writing about it. And I picked 20, 2050. And I'm, I'm in the middle of that novel right now. Looking forward to, to diving into that. You mentioned a minute ago, I mean, a lot of around the relationships. You're putting a lot more into that now. Any other thing you wish you had just spent more time on earlier? Well, always regrets. You know, I went to sea too much. Uh, I, I lost of my son. Uh, he went to sea with me. He'd just been to sea with me. But, you know, you, you can never spend too much time with your children. And that's what's really wonderful about now is <laughs> kids are look at them, daughters there, sons there, grandkids. Uh, being able to travel electronically and not physically, and certainly during the pandemic. But uh, once the pandemic gone, I don't plan to travel as much as I ever traveled before because I don't have to now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that other people take advantage and don't go running back to the office right away. Dr. Ballard, I'm on the edge of my seat, though, in terms of when you discover something big, and you've been fortunate, you've had some remarkable discoveries, including the Titanic and and some other legendary ones. What is that moment like where that discovery happens? Well, it's it's, Titanic was complex because, A, I was terrified I was going to blow my cover, so I had that worry in one part of my brain. The other one was, you know, I played college basketball and I, I was a serious athlete and I know what it was like to score the, the winning goal at the buzzer. And literally when we found it, it was the winning goal at the buzzer. And we were all jumping up and down. We're thinking, child is banging one another on the back. And then someone made this innocent comment in the command center. She said, she sinks in 20 minutes. It was two in the morning. She sank at 2.20. And that innocent comment was devastating in that we said, oh, this is not something to celebrate. It's like a Wall Street. And our mood changed dramatically. We went to solemn respect. We were at the place the water was speaking to us. The place speaks to you. You know, when I was down there in the debris field and, and people were talking about picking up things, I said, you don't go to Gettysburg with a shovel. You don't take belt buckles off the Arizona. A place of death is to be remembered and respected. And I, I don't think, I didn't take a thing off the bed. I don't take any of these. Now, in a super ancient shipwrecks, and we don't know what they are, we'll bring up a couple pieces to figure out what they are, but we leave the ship alone. No, uh, yeah, that, uh, that's, the ocean has more history in it than all the museums of the world combined. There's estimated by the United Nations three to four million shipwrecks, three to four million time capsules, and we've just, the surface. Sounds like you've got a lot more work to do. I, I know you, you mentioned you don't take anything physically away. What about mentally? What are the lasting impressions for you? Well, you know, I remember when we left the Titanic in 86 and I was on doing an interview with Tom Brokaw or something and I didn't realize the ship got underway and I, I ran out and I had, didn't get to say goodbye. And I went back in 2004 just to be with it, without the press, without just to go down there and be with it. Yeah, there's those moments when you want to go back to one of your discoveries and not tell anyone. Hmm. So you can just sit there because now with the robots, you can stay underwater. 
And so we stayed now for days and it was just making peace with it, sort of feeling it. Yeah. Like I say, it's, I never expected the Titanic to have any impact whatsoever on my life. <laughs> well, you know, that naive. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's being at peace with things that you find, particularly when there's, you know, a loss of life involved and gone to, I found a lot of shipwreck through a lot of loss of life. And I've always brought survivors with me and it's, as you wouldn't believe how it helps them get closure. Uh, yeah. It's look at how many people through the pandemic didn't get to say goodbye. Hmm. I didn't get to say goodbye to my son. And I know that feeling. Thinking about all the, the amazing trials, tribulations, um, amazing successes and discoveries. What about when you encounter a major failure? How are you bouncing back from that? They're the best. Yeah. I, I know you love to learn from them. You're, you're the expert in this. I, uh, you know, when I was playing tennis, you know, I was, I actually beat Arthur Ashe in a tennis match. And I was always told to play people better than you. I've always, another axiom is surround yourself with people smarter than you. Then you won't be an idiot. You'll keep your mouth shut and listen. I find failure is the greatest teacher. You know, you, you don't, you don't avoid failure to get to success. You work through it. You can, they're yin and yang. You can't just succeed. You have to fail. And the harder the challenge, the better the lesson. I didn't ski, but I know that one of the comments in one of my skiing buddies, if you don't come down the slopes and you're not covered in snow, why'd you go up? You know, so uh, I, I don't ski. I, I grew up in California. I looked at it. But uh, I understand the concept of failure. It's almost got your way to fail. Yeah. <laughs> Occasionally, it takes a little while to, to understand the, the true value and the lesson of those failures, but but they're certainly there. You have to have the passion to give up. Absolutely. Your driving engine in life is your passion. Well, I, I know we need to wrap up here in a minute. I would love to know, though, if you could sit down and have an interview like this, a long evening conversation, who would you love to have a conversation with? I, I, someone asked me if you could invite. I, re, I remember that famous quote by uh, Bill Clinton when he talked about all the people that uh, come to the White House to have dinner with him. And he, he, he spoke about uh, that all those people, he, he then made an analogy to Thomas Jefferson and said, it was, it's when he sits down alone. <laughs> uh, no, I, some of the great people uh, in our lives. Uh, uh, I'd love to sit down with Jesus Christ and have a chat. You know? I mean, I think there's so many people that I would love to sit down and listen to for sure. That's fantastic. So I, I know you've got a lot going on in the new book, Into the Deep, coming out. Where do you want the listeners staying connected with you? Uh, I know you mentioned where they can they can watch live and, and be there with you. Uh, anything else? Another one is the oceanexplorationtrust.org. Uh, that would be a great source, but not live.org. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Robert Ballard, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Take care, and thank you so much. Take care. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.